Hello and welcome to Stump, Death and Taxes. This is Meep, also known as Mary Pat Campbell. I'm a life actuary and I'm going to recite my credentials today. I'm a fellow of the Society of Actuaries and a member of the American Academy of Actuaries because today I'm talking about gatekeeping and education and professions. And obviously I got these credentials and it's kind of a barrier to entry to certain things. And I'll talk about that and uh, how the actuarial profession attracted me. But this is spurred on by uh, a couple of things that I have read recently. One was this past week, the Society of Actuaries put out an announcement that they are planning to make some changes to that credentialing process to get that fellowship, the FSA or Fellow of the Society of Actuaries. Now, this is nothing new. They've There's already been exam process changes since I got the FSA. And this is, you know, something that's been going on forever. And a lot of the reasons, of course, is that uh, what it indicates, um, a certain level of knowledge, expertise in insurance and pensions. And I said, I'm a life actuary, you know, I'm focusing on death, but life insurance and annuities are really what I specialize in reinsurance. I do know about pensions. I do, I do know about other types of insurance as well, but I really focus on life insurance the most with, you know, little orbits of less knowledge as you go further out in terms of different aspects. Everybody has their areas of expertise. To go through the process, I had to go through, you know, several exams, which have fairly low passing rates, uh, but it did not require a particular college degree. Actually, I didn't even need to have a college degree to take these exams. I just have to pass uh, the exams and there's some other requirements, but they're not so onerous as the exams because a lot of those exams had pass rates of less than 50%. Actually, I don't think any of them, well, maybe one of them had uh, a greater than 50% pass rate. Uh, so, you know, they're known as a difficult set of exams. Some people never make it all the way through, but you know, that's the way it is. Uh, so some of there's issues coming up with fewer and fewer people going for this credential and, you know, they're talking about demand and supply. So there's increasing global demand for actuarial ta talent, but there has been a decline in new candidates uh, in recent years for a variety of reasons. So supply has gone down in terms of people taking SOA exams. Maybe they're going to other actuarial organizations, of course. There's not just the SOA, there's the CAS, Casualty Actuarial Society, that's based in the US. There's also the Institute and Faculty of Actuaries, which is based in the United Kingdom. Um, they mentioned low graduation growth. Uh, that has to do with actuarial science degrees. However, <laughs> I just mentioned, you don't have to have a particular degree to be an actuary. My degrees are in math and physics, and we have lots of actuaries that come from other places. And, you know, a lot of people are 
going to other career options. Now, this has happened before where people defected to computer science when there were booms in other areas. But I'll return to that. So that's one thing that's just this past week of announcement of change in the exam system. But uh, there are other professions, of course, that have gatekeeping features, such as the legal profession, which has the bar exam. And I have seen uh, some comments about something called the next gen bar exam or aspects of the bar exam where the pass rates for the bar have been dropping and comments on that. Then there is the medical profession of people getting first into medical school. And of course, you don't need any particular undergraduate major to get into medical school, but whether or not people need to take the MCAT to get into medical school. And then, of course, once you get out of medical school, uh, which is not a sure thing once you get in, of course, you have to have residency and other things. So there's a lot of gatekeeping in those professions. And then I also had a little thought about sumo. Uh, of how people enter there, which is, of course, a totally different pathway. And a lot of this is coming out of the recent Supreme Court uh, decision with regards to affirmative action in uh, undergraduate admissions uh, and people freaking out over that uh, in terms of gatekeeping. Um, I, I also noticed a piece from the Brookings Institute, which this is actually where I'm going to start. Restricted access to lucrative college majors harms underrepresented students most. This is dated July 11th, 2023. And this has to, this focuses on science, technology, engineering, and math fields, STEM in particular. And this is policies, and this has been around for a long time, where they have requirements, they have gatekeeping, of whether you can be in a particular major, you have to have a certain grade point average or pass certain exams or certain classes to actually go, go on in that major. So in a lot of STEM majors, for example, that weed out course is often calculus. I know because I <laughs> taught that calculus class. And the issue, of course, is that the STEM majors do tend, you know, those people who major in those classes or major in those uh, subjects do tend to go on to professions that have higher incomes than, say, you know, communications majors or, you know, other humanities majors and that kind of thing. So my majors was math and physics. Uh, most of the people I know who had the physics degree, they did not go on in physicing. Um, they did other things because, sorry, it was an indication of kind of a skill set that you had in terms of quantitative reasoning. So you have gatekeeping at the beginning. You may get into college, but not be able to major in particular subjects. So they talked about major restriction policies. So there's in major mechanical restrictions, 
which requires students to achieve a GPA in the major's introductory courses above a minimum threshold. So like uh, introductory physics courses in order to major in physics. We also had that. There was like three semesters. I placed out of the first two semesters because of AP exam credit and then just jumped right into the third semester, for example. So that's uh, giving you an example of inequality. Other physics majors may have had to start at physics 1, 101. I don't remember what the actual course numbers were. And I started at the third semester. I didn't have to take calculus. I placed out of all of the calculus courses because I had had them all in high school. I took calculus in 10th grade. Most people don't do that. Um, different people have advantages coming into these majors. So number two is overall mechanical restrictions require students to achieve an overall GPA in their first year or two of college above a certain threshold. So that's for all, all classes. And that may be a problem for like all majors. It depends on the major. And then there's discretionary restrictions require students to submit a competitive application to the department. And we had something like that at North Carolina State University to be able to major in certain very popular subjects. Um, so it was an engineering school and not everybody got into engineering. Uh, and so we had people where the College of Engineering was their first choice. They did not get in. And so they were slumming it with the physics majors. And they were hoping that by, like, say, a first year of excellent results in the physics classes and calculus and all the introductory classes, they would be allowed into the engineering school. Um, an even more competitive program was the School of Design. Uh, and architecture and that kind of thing. Not very many people got into that program. Um, so a lot of gatekeeping just at the very beginning. You might have to submit a portfolio. You might have to show your commitment to that particular subject, but other ones that are not as popular will let basically anybody in. Uh, there were known to be certain subjects that, you know, if you didn't do well or you you know, got a C in, or D in calculus. Well, guess what? You're majoring in psychology or, you know, you're going to have to go to the humanities college or something like that. You are not going to be staying in the science college. In this piece, they note that what these restrictions seem to be is dealing with demand when you get a glut of demand of students and you don't have enough faculty to handle that number of students for that particular major. Um, so the example they have, the economics major at the University of California, Santa Cruz, provides a useful example of an in-major mechanical major restriction after the financial crisis, so 2009. Uh, 2008 to 2009, when demand for the economics major surged, students who wanted to declare UC Santa Cruz's economics major had to earn at least a 2.8 average GPA in two specific introductory economics classes. While an appeals process allowed some low GPA students into the major, the restriction pushed most into other lower premium social science majors. Overall mechanical restrictions work in a similar manner, but are based on average grades across more courses. Notably, students who are versed in the hidden curriculum of how colleges work, and that 
was like me, so I knew how to work the system or have access to good advising may game the system by choosing courses that make it easy to meet the GPA threshold for their intended major. Well, I didn't have to do that because I'm a straight A student, but I learned how to get out of classes or get credit so I didn't have to waste my time. And I could take the classes I was interested in and take higher level classes, which prepped me for graduate school. So they looked at how common restrictions were in higher education and they collected data at 106 public universities with an R1 research designation. So that's like a very high level in terms of the faculty you're going to be research focused, uh, PhDs, you know, fairly high level. Um, and these are going to be kind of the name universities and they looked at all majors, how many of them had restrictions, um, like 45% over all majors had no restrictions at all. 17% uh, had discretionary restrictions, uh, about 21% had overall mechanical restrictions, and 17% had an in-major mechanical restriction. They compared that to what they're calling, you know, they picked high premium majors and they had their list business computer science economics engineering and nursing okay and so these are ones that are supposed to get you higher uh higher incomes or and they're popular and this that and the other i don't necessarily consider these you know the ones i would pick but these are the ones they're picking um so you find what it really pushed up here is an overall mechanical restriction. So having to maintain a minimum GPA overall. Um, so that went up to from 21%, that's all majors up to 33%. So about a third are requiring a minimum GPA overall in order to major in these. And um, about 27% have an in-major mechanical restriction. So like you have to get a minimum GPA on introductory courses. That leaves, you know, the discretionary restriction is at 16%. That's not very different from all majors at 17%. Um, so you're left with no restrictions at about 25%. Um, so yeah, there's a lot more restrictions involved in this particular set of majors, which were business, computer science, economics, engineering, and nursing that they picked. It's not necessarily the ones I would pick, but I think they picked these ones because they tend to be in all of the universities and they tend to have a lot of people interested in majoring in those and perhaps do not have a lot of underrepresented minorities by race and ethnicity and also perhaps women, though I'm not sure that's true about business, um, but is probably true of computer science and economics and, in, and definitely true of engineering. Nursing, of course, is more dominated by women, um, but uh, higher level degrees in nursing are not necessarily dominated by women and I don't need to get into those details. Um, but it's true, there are ways to game these systems if you really have connections. And that's, as I said, what I did, but other people may be denied gaming those. And so it's, it's an interesting paper. They do make the argument that re removing or reducing these restrictions will not necessarily degrade the quality of the graduates of these programs. 
I'm not going to make a comment one way or another with regards to that. Um, the employers can read a transcript, and that's one argument I've made in the past, though it was funny when um, I had left academia and put a resume together. Nobody told me they were expecting to see a GPA on there because I'm like, it's been a long time since I've been to undergraduate. They want to see my undergraduate GPA? I mean, for crying out loud, I went to graduate school at NYU. What do they think my GPA was? I put freaking summa cum laude on there. Can you not figure that out? It was high. It was 4.0, okay? I've, I've been 4.0 since sixth grade. It makes it easy to calculate um, in any case. That's one gatekeeping is in, you know, you can get your foot in the door. You can get into college, but it doesn't matter if you get into college if the major you get is of low value. Um, but that's one level. So just getting that degree, and this is why we have the professional certifications, doesn't necessarily really get you that profession. So we have these professional designations that are separate of college degrees. And these are very different because when you get a college degree, who's grading you? It's the people who are teaching you. They have an interest to a certain extent. And this is with, I'm sorry, the the drift in college grades over time of not being too harsh. Uh, you're you're the paying customers even if the money is coming from government grants and loans and that kind of thing uh, it's not the employers or the people who want to know whether or not this is a quality graduate <laughs> they're not the ones who are paying the college per se so accurate feedback on how well the student did you know the college is not necessarily the one that's going to provide it so we have these professional designations such as passing the bar for lawyers and this is intended so think about it why do we have these designations It's because you have a third party that has an interest in certifying that the person passing this exam so think medical board exams legal bar and say actuarial exams we have at a cfas chartered financial analysts there's all sorts of professional certifications out exams out there i, I mentioned nursing there are nursing exams out there um, there's teaching exams out there that are separate from the colleges where it's a separate body, the point of these exams are to show, do these people have a certain minimum level of knowledge uh, and to certify it? They're not the ones who taught the material. So that's the one I always liked when I taught actuarial preparation, you know, prep seminars for the exams. I'm the one teaching. I don't have to grade anything. I'm not grading the exams. Um, so that was the nice part. I hated grading when I taught college classes because then I would find out just how little I taught was actually absorbed by the students. It's very depressing as a teacher to find that out. Um, and so because of the nature of the kinds of classes I would teach, I actually gave my students a chance to fix their work and increase their grade. 
because of course in the real life um the kinds of classes i was teaching i was like i'm teaching you as if you're going to work for me because these were classes in computing so doing excel or vba or sql uh, and also business writing that maybe if they're working for me one day it's not like oh you got an 80 percent no 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 you have to keep doing it until it's correct until it's good enough that it's a finished pro work product that's how the real life real life works i don't grade your effort in the workplace that's you know that's a different aspect in any case when we do the actuarial exams when you do the bar when you do the medical boards we're trying to check that you actually know a certain amount we know nobody's a hundred percent that's okay but there's a certain level of competency that we're checking for so let's look at the recent comments on this next gen bar exam this is at volok conspiracy which is at reason.com it's josh blackman and he had a couple of posts on this so the first one is from july 12th and it's titled next gen bar exam multiple choice questions only require takers to spot issues and not apply the rules so he writes in law schools generations of students have been taught the irac irac model to answer legal questions first students must spot the issue that's i what legal doctrine do the facts implicate second students must state the rule that's r what particular legal precedent statute or principle governs this conflict third students must then apply the rule to these facts that's a under a particular legal standard how should the court rule fourth students must state the conclusion c who wins the plaintiff or the defendant of course there are many variations of iraq and invariably many students stop using it rigidly at some point during the second year but the basic process applying a rule to particular facts is a cornerstone of legal education that background brings me to the next gen bar exam i've written about this new formulation of the multi-state bar exam which will launch in some states in 2026. justice j mitchell of the alabama supreme court already expressed a concern that the national conference of bar examiners ncbe is placing dei concerns over competence critics contend that the current bar exam is racist and should be eliminated I have another concern which may be related the ncbe seems to be making the exam substantially easier the ncbe released a batch of questions to demonstrate how the next gen exam will function and uh, the multiple choice questions reflect a new approach rather than forcing students to memorize particular rules and then apply them the new questions only ask students to spot the issues so of iraq it's only the i part the thinking is that practicing attorneys do not actually have to memorize particular rules or even know how to apply them so long as they can recognize what doctrine is implicated a quick query on westlaw lexis and lord help us chat gpt can locate the particular rule and then the lawyer can figure out how to apply that rule to the facts or just ask chat gpt to do it in short bar examinees will not have to know the rule apply the rule or conclude the case they only have to spot the issue only i not rack 
Okay, and then he goes through an example. So that's part one. And then part two is from uh, July 21st. A former law examiner comments on the next-gen bar exam. So last week, I wrote about the apparent efforts to make the next-gen bar exam far simpler than the current exam. I received an email from a person who worked as a state board of law examiners. With permission, I reproduced the email, stripping any reference to the person's state. And I'm just going to call it X, where he X'd out the state. I was an assistant to the ex-board of law examiners when the ex-Supreme Court decided to adopt the UBE, Uniform Bar Exam. The sales pitch for the UBE from the NCBE, as presented to the group of assistant bar examiners I was among, was threefold. First, it won't be any worse than the current bar exam. Second, it will be better for the applicants because they will have more flexibility in deciding what state they should move to. Third, everybody else is doing it. None of those explanations support such a dramatic change in public policy as the adoption of the UBE in the abandonment of a state-specific essay test. For my part, I ask two questions. If the UBE is not an affirmative improvement over the status quo, why should we change? Why should the ex-Supreme Court elevate the applicant's interest in residential flexibility over ensuring that ex's new lawyers have demonstrated some level of competence in ex-law? I did not receive a satisfactory, I, I did not receive satisfactory answers to either question. The board and other assistants seemed inclined to blindly defer to the so-called expertise of the NCBE and generally unwilling to consider the consequences of the policy change. And there's more and I'm not going to read the whole thing. So, but the, the point is you need to remember why these exams exist. The point of these bar exams, the point of this gatekeeping is to protect the public, especially something like medical boards and the bar exam. Because if these lawyers are supposed to be representing people in the public who do not have legal expertise, and they're going to be relying on these lawyers to represent them in criminal cases, in civil cases, uh, you need to have them to be at least competent in local law. And that's the concept behind the bar exams and the concept behind this gatekeeping. I'm going to go back to the actuarial issue. And the actuarial issue is this, and this has happened a few times before. Um, I'm concerned about execution. You know, what they have um, what they are saying they're going to do, uh, putting a more flexible pathway, increase global relevancy because the issue is like the regulatory content that they have in the current exam paths is U.S. and uh, Canada focused and they want to make it more relevant to the candidates regulatory jurisdiction where they are. That makes sense to me. Um, they want local regulatory material moved outside of FSA. This has caused a problem in the past. They did that before, and it caused a huge stink. So they need to be careful about that, but we'll see about that. Maybe they make that a certificate separate. Um, enhanced syllabus and better guidance. Exams offered up to three times per year. It's now twice. Faster grading, exam feedback, and improved source materials. Um, it'd be great if they can execute on this. But the issue with the actuarial, especially the regulatory, um, is that what one needs the actuarial credentials for 
And by the way, there is almost nothing I have done in my professional career where my credentials are required. That's different from, say, legal or medical credentials, where it's illegal to do certain things unless, you know, you have passed the bar or you're admitted to the bar in a particular state or you have the medical credentials, you know, uh, practicing medicine without a license is illegal, that kind of thing. There's no, there are things that you have to be a credentialed actuary with certain qualifications to do. And one of the things is to sign off on regulatory reserves. Um, I have not done that, by the way. I don't have those credentials, by the way. I could get them, but I don't have them currently. But there are two points to this is that um, the reserves are to protect policyholder interests. So that's why those requirements exist. That said, most of the people with actual credentials in the United States, it's different in different countries, but within the United States, most of us who are FSAs, we do not have to have our FSA credential to do what we do. It's more a mark of credibility. I work in insurance research. My FSA, fellow of the Society of Actuaries and MAAA, member of the American Academy of Actuaries, is a stamp of my expertise within the insurance industry. That's what it reflects for me. So unlike the legal, you know, and the legal and medical uh credentials, as it were, or say CFA, Chartered Financial Analyst, these can be indicators of expertise. Some people will have that and not be practicing law or not be practicing medicine. But you have to be careful, of course, what do these credentials actually represent? It does not mean I have expertise outside of what I actually have. The reason I was attracted to the actuarial profession is that this was actually a fairly low barrier to entry for me because I did not need any particular degree. I could pass these exams, and I'm sorry, the first few exams, yes, I know what the pass rate were, but they're based off of, I'm sorry, fairly easy math. Easy math to me because of the kind of math I used to teach and my experience with math. It was easy for me to learn and it was not too onerous for me to study. That's not the typical experience for people, but it makes it an attractive profession for people for whom learning math is very easy. Um, the higher level exams, however, do get very specific in regulatory and the itty bitty details. And that's actually what you get paid for because like anyone can do the math. So for most of us actuaries, the fun part is doing the analysis and any kind of statistics and, uh, you know, dealing with the math stuff. The actual difficult part is dealing with people and how people actually behave um, and dealing with messy models and messy data, and it's a challenge. Um, I enjoy that challenge, but um, what's nice about getting the actuarial credentials is you can get it while you're working. So you're not really accruing debt 
while you're working towards your credential. And the actual credential is not unique in this. CFA is like this in several other uh, finance industry or finance related credentials are like that. There's a lot of professional credentials out there where people can pick them up while they're working. You don't have to go to graduate school. You don't have to, you know, get into a lot of debt to do these. It does take a lot of time to do the studying, but I'm, I wake up very early in the morning and I did a lot of my studying from like 4 a.m. to 7 a.m. every day. Uh, so it worked for my lifestyle very well. So uh, I did mention I was going to say something about sumo. Sumo is a different kind of gatekeeping profession. People can come in. You have to come in when you're young. It's obviously all males. And there's restrictions that make it difficult for foreign wrestlers to come in. But if you look at my height and weight graphs, these people are of all sorts of heights. They usually start out very skinny. <laughs> they don't start out that big. Um, they come in, a lot of them come in as teenagers, so they drop out of high school and join a sumo stable fairly young and work up from the very bottom. Most of them never, it's a tournament kind of thing, you go up and down ladders. Most of them never make it to the top, paying ranks. Some of them do, a lot of them, you know, fall out over time. Uh, you know, and most of them, when they retire, they're not very old, uh, you know, maybe in their 30s and they have to come up with another career. A lot of them don't stay in the sumo association for life, that they're not able to get senior stock to be able to stay in the sumo association. It's a very difficult kind of career. That's some heavy duty gatekeeping right there. Some of them go to sumo high schools and sumo universities where they have very strong sumo clubs and do amateur sumo competitions and they qualify by winning those and then they get to start at much higher levels. Um, that's very different from most professional careers. Most of us are not working in what I would call tournament professions where it's all or nothing, where like you're trying to make money by being a best-selling author. That's really not a great kind of profession to go into. Something that's more broad, like actuarial, like legal, like medical, like a data science professional. Most of us are in careers like that, uh, where there actually are a lot of options. There are a lot of spaces and you don't have to, it's not a zero sum game where somebody has to, this is why I didn't like academia. I was in a situation where it was like, well, someone has to die for a position to open up. Tournament professions are brutal. Um, I prefer the kinds of things that you get where there's potential growth in an industry where, and this is when I go and interview for positions, like is the reason the position open because someone left or is it because of growth of a company and it's totally new? That's going to be a very different dynamic. In any case, there are reasons for gatekeeping, and it is interesting to see what Brookings had. Their argument, going back to the original piece about they, they think, you know, it's awful that there's this gatekeeping, and their solution, of course, is, well, they shouldn't have the gatekeeping. You should just hire a bunch more ad adjuncts. Now I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. Um, it's just very difficult operationally to keep it under control. I understand why they, when you've got a glut of students, 
to make sure you have the most committed students you put in these restrictions so you can handle it. Uh, a lot of these colleges have only so much space on campus. Oh, you can do it online. Well, you start having problems in controlling your program then. Um, I understand, you know, maybe expand your program more to allow more students in. But you also want to be more clear to students if they're making C's and D's in college when the grading is already pretty squishy, and that's how I'm going to say it, it might be good to encourage students to go into areas where it will fit their strengths better. Just saying, oh yeah, economics, you'll get higher income. Well, yeah, but only if you can thrive there. And you could say, well, you can get these jobs, but they may be miserable in those jobs. And I've seen this, of course, in the actuarial career because it's like, oh, you can do math. You can get into actuarial. And then they find out the math really isn't all that interesting. And it's not. It's fairly simple math. Um, that's not the interesting part of the work. And then they get bored and they wanted to do something more like academic math. Well, if you wanted to do something more like academic math, then that's where you should have been. Um, or if you want something that's money, 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 then maybe more into direct finance. It's you got to be a little more clear about your goals, you know, a little more realistic. So the gatekeeping may also help the students evaluate, you know, reevaluate what might work best for them or, you know, why is your GPA so low? If it's all classes, maybe they are taking too high a class load or picking classes that are too hard for them outside the major and that kind of thing. So, you know, it's it could be just bad advice, academic advising, and they could do well in the major only if they got things balanced. So, you know, there's, there's some good advice in here for college programs to make things more accessible to more students within popular majors but you know there needs to be some practical understanding that there are there are some very good reasons they put restrictions in in any case that's been stump death and taxes talk to y'all later